Hi there, I am Ivy Lassiter, the host of the Four Parents Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Pop in your earbuds and multitask while we talk about parenting things. Lessons learned, funny stories, and practical wisdom from normal people who have been there. Today I'm talking with Senna. She's sharing her story, which sounds sort of like the story of the prodigal son. She talks about how she got there, how her parents responded, and how her heart turned back to God. It's a beautiful story. Here's our conversation. All right. So talk about your childhood and what it felt like to grow up being a first-generation American. I'm actually 1.5 or second gen, and people get really particular (laughs) with these labels. Okay. Good to know. I would probably have to Google it right now, but I'm pretty sure. So my parents are considered first gen because they're the ones that immigrated when they were 20 years old. And so that that makes a difference too in the labeling of like 1.2, 1.5. I'm, I'm I'm not really into those things, but yes, most people are, and they'll tell you, oh yeah, I'm a 1.5 or two. Um, so I'm a second gen, um, and what it is is that like I grew up in, born and raised in Oahu, um, and like I was telling you before, it's just so diverse there. Yeah. And the majority of the population is Asian because back in the day in Hawaii, they were the main um, economic growth factor was the sugarcane plantation. They needed people to tend the fields. And so they would bring in people from China, the Philippines, Korea. And literally, when you're in school in elementary, you'll go to the sugarcane uh, plantation as a field trip. And there you'll see all the different houses of the different ethnicities uh, that were there and go and walk into a Japanese house and see what that looks like versus a Chinese house, a Filipino house and whatnot. And so um, because that was the history of Hawaii, in Hawaii, people are predominantly Asian. Why did your parents go to Hawaii? Like those very reasons or what, what, what drew them there? Yeah, I think for my parents got married when they're 20 years old. Uh-huh. Um, both of their families, uh, their fathers were remarrying. And so both of my parents didn't grow up uh, with a mother present in their life. Okay. Or they had a mother figure, but not their biological mother. And so when their fathers were remarrying, they're like, hey, we're dating. Let's blow this joint. Um, <laughs> so my, my mom and dad moved and immigrated actually first to New York at 20 years old and became like a bus boy. Uh, my mom was working at the restaurant or, or helping out with my, her aunt and uncle's uh, grocery store. And then from there, they had my brother who's seven years older than me. Okay. Uh, but they would get like held up at, at, at a gunpoint and put in the freezer. This was like. In uh, New York? In New York. This is oh New York gosh. in the eighties, you know? Okay. Yeah. One time my dad is super, he's still a kid. He's like probably 20 something, worked really hard and bought like a really old red Escalade because that was in during the time. And he walked into a convenience store. He doesn't know any English, like much English. And this guy's like, oh yeah, nice car. I'm going to take it. My dad's like, oh, thank you. And he like walks into the convenience store, walks out and his car's gone. No. And so like, those are the experiences my my parents had at a young age. who just like, Trying to hustle for the American dream. <laughs> yes. So started in New York. And then when did they move to Hawaii? Yes. And so when they were starting to get pregnant with me or thinking about that, I'm not sure 
but I like to say it's because of me and they wanted yes. to raise a daughter in a more uh, homey environment. Yes. Uh, they, my father's father was working in the tourism industry in Hawaii. And so because the tourism industry was booming I, and my grandpa was there, my parents moved and had me in Hawaii. Oh my gosh. So in your home, what language did y'all speak? So in my home, we spoke Korean. We, we call it Konglish. Okay. So it's Korean uh, mixed with English. Oh, uh, okay. But my dad, is, is, my mom is a registered nurse right now. She went to community college in America at the age of 33 or something like that. Um, and so I remember her studying with two books at 3 a.m. Like I was like, I would wake up in the middle of the night. It's 3 a.m. And my mom would have a nursing book, which is like super thick. And then a dictionary so that she can literally use the Korean dictionary to define the medical terms that she was reading. Oh my, I cannot imagine going, like, I don't know why, like going through nursing school in a language that is your second language. Yes. Like all those terms and everything. Yeah. And she graduated um, on the dean's list or like some kind of honors award, cum laude or something. So did they come for like the American dream? Is that what motivated them to move? Yeah, for sure. I definitely at that time when they're they were 20 years old, that was kind of where America was booming and it looked at as the place to be to like fulfill your dreams, work really hard and you can do it. Yeah. But in Korea, it's like, even if you work really hard, that's not the case. You you need to have a come from a specific pedigree or, you know, have this inside. um, You need to know someone in the field you want to work with. You have to have a lot of money. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, just an average person doesn't get that too far past, you know, the ceilings that they're capped with. Yeah. Yeah. That I do think that's unique about America. I mean, it really is. So what differences, like what, what cultural differences did y'all have? Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Cause like I said, growing up in Hawaii was super interesting um, because Hawaii is, is the 50th state of America uh-huh. it has its own culture and it was the Hawaiian land. And so just being in, aside from even being Korean, being in Hawaii is, is a very interesting place because you're learning about the Hawaiian culture, Hawaiian history. Yes. Hawaiian and then on top of that, they kind of squeeze in American history. <laughs> um, and so like to, to, till this day, I'm still learning about American history because I wasn't like specifically taught in my school. We learn. I know all about Hawaiian history uh, and the monarchy, but American history, I'm still learning. And so, so but, fascinating. Yes. And so add the Korean element to this. So I'm like Korean, Amer- I'm Korean, but I'm American living in Hawaii on an island. Uh, and that's so cool. Like all these, this like blend of things, you know? And so because, yeah. how, how is that like what? How has that kind of defined you, do you think? Yeah. So I've I've heard a lot of my friends and I live in Florida, I live in California now. And so I've heard a lot of my Asian friends upbringing, of course, the classic school lunch where our parents um, put in ethnic food and it smells like kimchi. It smells delicious <laughs> to us, but we are embarrassed when we open the lid. Um, and so I've heard many stories about that. Um and also, of course, kind of the bullying, teasing and stuff. But that wasn't really my situation growing up because we all had stinky lunch together because we're all <laughs> we're all mixed. And so in Hawaii, 
what's what's very unique to Hawaii is this aloha spirit. Uh-huh. We hear this word aloha all the time, but in Hawaii, you're really accepted as you are in your diverse nature because everyone, it's a melting pot. Everyone's mixed. That's so cool. And we have this baseline level of respect and aloha, we call it. And what that means is like, even if you go to the grocery store or sit at a public bus stop or, um, you know, the person next to you is immediately referenced as auntie, uncle, you call them, oh, auntie or uncle, or like someone, some lady drops a wall, wall, her wallet while you're walking and you would run up to her and be like, oh, auntie, you dropped your wallet. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So immediately everyone you meet is family and yeah. that's just like the, the baseline culture in, in Hawaii is you just treat everyone like your family. And so this divert, like this ethical tension is, 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 this doesn't exist really because yeah, everyone's auntie uncle. So as far as the difference between your parents and you, do you see a big difference between how y'all operate or how you communicate or those kinds of things? Just because your, your upbringings were very different. It yes. Would, it would seem to me. I mean, one thing I've observed about the immigrant families in Hawaii particularly is they're pretty progressive or forward thinking. That's why they came to America. Uh-huh. And so you're not getting like, of course, we have the traditional stereotypes of what a Korean dad is like or Korean or Asian man, an Asian father, a little bit more reserved or, um, yeah, holds back on their emotions, doesn't talk a lot, very gritty and rough. Uh, but I would say more than the traditional Asian man, people who, who immigrate are pretty like gritty, like they, they have this perseverance and forward thinking where they want to try something new. And so there wasn't a huge difference in that, but of course there's a lot of small cultural elements that, um, not put a divide, but I, we really had to work towards intentionally to understand each other. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah it would, it seems to me like if you have the, some, the thing in you that makes you feel compelled to move to a new country, then you're going to be okay with change. Mm-hmm. You're going to have some open mindedness, right? Yes. So yeah. what did it look like for y'all to intentionally work together to connect on things? Yeah, so some of the the cultural differences in, in home and outside would be um, like my brother, for instance. So when you are getting um, corrected, I wouldn't say rebuked, but when when your parents are teaching you something in the Korean culture, you look them uh, you you don't look them in the eye. It's kind of rude, and and so my brother was getting scolded for something, and my dad or my mom, I don't remember who, were like why are you looking me straight in the eye when I'm talking to you? Like you should, I think the cultural uh, like tone under it's like, you should feel remorse, like put your head down or so. I don't know what it is, but you don't do that. You don't, when someone's like scolding you, you don't look them straight in the eye. And my brother was getting scolded for that. And he said, mom, like when I go to school, I'm supposed to look the teacher in the eye when she's talking to me. Uh And, And this is like, so confusing. Like, I'm getting like, do you want me to look at you in the eye or do you not want me to look at you in the eye? Because I'm, I'm taught that that's what's respectful is to look at someone. Yes. Those are like the little things that you wouldn't expect. But even those kinds of things are, are things that we would have to like have room and grace to, to kind of like work it out. 
Yeah. Well, I love that your brother was able to like communicate that, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think on so many levels, uh, or at least in the American culture or as portrayed on TV. So growing up, I was a latchkey kid, meaning my parents are busy working. I love my parents so much. They are, they've taught me perseverance, resilience, and grit and what it looks like to just have the things in life being thrown at you and then just catch it with grace and use it mm-hmm. for, move forward and build yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, but they were, yeah, we were, they were going after the American dream and I was a part of it. And so they were working really hard to put us in the best schools, extracurricular activity and give us a really good upbringing so that we wouldn't have to worry about money Aww. or lacking anything. But that came at the sacrifice of their physical presence. Um, huh. My mom did a great job. But my dad was was confined to literally his shop from like 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. So I wouldn't be able to see him growing up when I was in elementary school a lot. Um, I would go stay at his shop a lot. And so I learned the, the cash register at an early age. I would talk to the hotel guests. And I would say that was my entrepreneurial journey starting there is like figuring out how much quarters to give back. And so I would spend a lot of time at my dad at the store, but not like a lot of intentional time. Uh, bonding. And so I think the biggest thing is like communication. Mm. Uh, I think that's, was the hardest um, hill. Yeah. To is in TV. what, yeah, go ahead. In what ways did you see your parents persevere or have resilience? I mean, for my parents, it's like, like you said, they probably had a really strong mindset and, or how to cultivate um, a strong mindset every day. Yeah. Being limited on their language or even their network uh, and resources. And I can't imagine what my mom, like I said, my mom was, was going through community college, you know, trying to get her a nursing degree. And I, I don't know what she was processing or going through being like 33, two kids mm. and, and deciding to do a career change in another language. And so, I mean, those are the types of things where I'm like, I feel that a lot of Asian immigrant children are very aware of the sacrifices mm. their parents make. Yes. And I don't think uh, explicitly parents go, oh, you need to pay me back. I don't think anyone ever does that. Um, and I, but I think something unique to the Asian culture, which is true across the board universally, but what's a little bit stronger is that we are a, we're, we're a, like a corporate unit. We're the opposite of individualism. So for us, it's like, we share in everything. So my yeah. life is, is your life. Is there unhealthy degrees to that? Yeah, for, probably for sure. But we're a family. That's, that's something that's, that we share together. We're a team. Yeah. Growing up, it was, it was really interesting because you see your parents sacrificing and even though it's not spoken, you want to pay them back. And I think that's, that's on every single Asian immigrant's kid's mind. Wow. And so we're all working, studying, doing all this. And it, our parents don't want it. Of course, our parents don't want the weight of this, but we are working really hard because we've watched what our parents have done and the things that they've sacrificed or wrestled with. and want to make sure that we can retire them early or buy a house, buy a bag. I don't know, like be able to take care of them. That's yes. for sure. 
So you wouldn't say that's not necessarily a spoken expectation, but it's something inside that it's like, I've watched my parents work so hard that I want to work hard and and use what they've provided me, right? Like not waste what they've provided me kind of thing. Yeah, 1000%. This is, I mean, I can't make a, a too of a broad statement, but I would say majority, if not most everyone immigrant children definitely I think about at least once a day for sure oh okay can we jump to your mom's cancer diagnosis Mm -hmm. and how that impacted you yeah so when I was I think 15 years old me and my brother who's seven years older than me we were fighting Uh, this was a um Fighting wasn't a rare occurrence in our house. We like to bicker and I'm kind of feisty. So I don't hold back and I just keep going um, and get myself in trouble. And so we were arguing one day and my pa- my mom was like, please stop fighting. Please stop yelling. We just ignored her and kept going at it. And we we're yelling at each other. My mom couldn't take it. And she was sitting down with a tray of food mm-hmm. and we just kept going at it that my mom flipped the tray of food and was like, you need to stop fighting. I'm sick. I have cancer. And so that's a moment we found out my mom had cancer mid fight. And I, I don't really remember that mo- moment afterwards, but I think I just went to my room because I was so shocked. Like, I didn't know what to do. I probably went to my mom and said, are you OK? Are, are you are you dying? I don't know if I even said that, but I just remember not knowing how to process it, going into my room. And at 15, that started like my prodigal son story, because yeah. when I saw my mom, she was the leader uh she was like the faith leader of our household mm-hmm. and she went to dawn service um she made meals and c- cooked and cleaned for the sunday school vbs like women's organization choir like everything my mom was there and so when i saw my mom bedridden um as she was going through chemo uh she actually specifically chose to do radiation instead of chemo um because she didn't want to see she didn't want me to see her hair fall out. Why do you and think she, that is? She says it's because, and I, and I agree, I was a very emotional child. I'm an Enneagram four <laughs> and, and Enneagram fours need extra love and they need intentional time to be taught how to regulate their emotions. Uh-huh. Um, and that it's a beautiful thing because yeah. it, it serves me well now, but I had to go through many years learning how uh, to to embrace my emotions yeah. and do them well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was scared that I, at, at 15, when I was kind of going through, you know, my teen, teenage stage, my adolescence, like I would, uh, I would crumble watching her lose her hair. And so she deliberately chose to permanently mutilate her body through radiation um, so that she could keep her hair and that I wouldn't lose it. <laughs> oh my gosh. How long was her treatment? Yeah, so that during that time, which is really interesting too, is I don't have much memory of that time. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I can't even tell you because my mom took herself to treatment. My mom drove herself back and forth to treatment, or sometimes my dad would would pick her up if she's feeling weak. She also passed a um, kidney stone while she was on radiation. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, oh my gosh. for, 
for me, my mom tried to hide it from us. Like she didn't try to hide it, but she wanted to protect, protect mm-hmm. us from it. And so there wasn't a lot of communication that that happened or that I can remember. And I think that's one thing that I'm super aware of now is that we need to talk to our children about things that are going on mm-hmm. because they're so perceptive. They can feel, they can, they hear, they understand, they can read your body, your, you know, all of these different things. Like no matter what age we should be talking to them and making it age appropriate. But if we don't sit them down and have safe spaces to ask questions or talk through things, we're they're They're going to immediately think it's their fault. And this yeah. is recently proven this when there's no reasoning we just turn to ourselves and say, Oh, I must've done something wrong. And huh. so when you don't know that you, you immediately go, okay, well, well, what did I do? Or man, why is this my fault? And so that's a lot of my journey at 15 is thinking that I caused my mom's cancer <laughs> and a lot of different things. The enemy soup like really used um, my family, my family tensions and the things that were coming up as an attack o- over my identity and thinking that I caused a lot of these things. Yeah. So how did you navigate those feelings? Cause you, you look to other things for comfort, right? Yeah. For sh- I mean, at 15, that's when I, I mean, for me, like my fights with my brother would get pretty bad. Um, and he, would, he learned to like, he learns to, to gain respect, you, you command it and you take it. Cause that's kind of like the Asian culture too. Like you just, there's automatic hierarchy and respect and order that needs Mm -hmm. to take place. But I wasn't following those rules when it came to my brother. And so he would kind of lash out at me. And so it was my mom and my, my brother on the other hand, and my dad who just kind of threw himself into work and didn't speak a lot anyways. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't re- like, it was just so overwhelming for him, for my mom and dad, like me and my brother's fighting was pretty bad that. And a lot of that also comes from being a child of immigrants, seven years apart. My mom and dad were so busy making all the mistakes or like figuring life out with him. And it got a little bit more comfortable when I was born seven years, you know, in this life. And my brother would kind of just not be able to reconcile the difference in affection that I was receiving. Um, Interesting. And that, that's yeah. kind of thing too, where siblings either are your friend or foe, I feel like, uh-huh. um, well, we're best of friends now and it always comes back around, but yeah. So because of those things that were going on, I, I just needed to escape. Yeah. Like I thought, and the enemy told me, oh, it's your, it's your fault. Your mom has cancer because if you're under a lot of stress, uh, we all have cancer cells in our body and it activates. And so I was like, you and your brother are fighting a lot. And so it's your fault, Sana. Oh my yeah. gosh. And my brother would be like, yeah, Sana, like when we, whenever we fight, I get kicked out and there's no good kids at night. And so it's your fault that I have these problems. And um, yeah, my dad would make comments and stuff like that. And they just, they were speaking out of their own pain. And, and, and it was, it was, no one was saying this. It was the enemy. Really. It was the enemy. Yes. And so I started to hate myself. Mm. And so if you don't like someone in front of you, you could simply just get up and move away. Mm. But if you don't like yourself, how do you, how do you deal with that? Golly. 
uh, at 15, I mean, it's Hawaii. So we call it ganja, but we, or Mary Jane or whatever, but that was the green leaf medicine. And so at 15, I was introduced in high school uh, to smoking pot. And at 15, I saw, wow, this is really comforting. I don't feel anything. I feel, feel happy actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is, this is good medicine for whatever's happening to me. It's a good antidote. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I would come home, I see my mom bedridden. I can't ask her for 20 bucks for a bag. And so I just started becoming a street pharmacist at that time and mm-hmm. just decided to take matters in my own hand. And at 15, I renounced my faith. So just going back, uh, when I saw my mom bedridden, spiritual leader of our household, I told God, I was like, God, like I can never be this faithful person that my mom is. And so if even she uh, is left on her deathbed, like, I don't know what you're going to do with me. I didn't understand his nature and character. And I thought he was going to like smite me if I did anything wrong. And I'm like, okay, this is a losing game. Might as well quit now and feel a little bit more free. <laughs> um, and so I, I renounced my faith at 15 and I had this gaping hole in my heart that I needed to fill. And so I looked for a savior for five years. And one of that, um, yeah, weed and selling it. And then I was making money. I was making like $300 a week at 15 years old. Um, and that drew to bigger parties, more friends, boyfriend, and every step of the way that I try to use these things as a savior, it always fell short. And I was left even emptier and more disappointed because I was so expectant that this time I'm going to be saved, or I'm going to feel something or crack the code of life um, (laughs) and feel alive again. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that wasn't the case. Yeah. Did you, did you tell your mom that you had renounced your faith? No, I I didn't tell her, but every, every Sunday she'd knock on my door and she's like, Hey son, I'm going to church today. Do you want to come? And I'd be like, no, can you close the door? And she would do that every single Sunday. Oh my God. And she never forced me to go to church. She never reprimanded me or anything. She would just every Sunday so consistently. And every, during that five years, every time I got in trouble because I was lashing out because I felt like my parents didn't understand me. Um, Nobody knew what was going on in my life and all these different things. Um, She was so faithful. She would just always pray for me. And, and I know my, I know Jesus's love and I, I attest my faith, my faith uh, to my mom's diligence. And my my, my, my mom didn't sit me down and force Jesus on me. She showed me Jesus Mm -hmm. through her love, her patience and her grace and her never judging me or being like, what's wrong with you? Because I was thinking all of those things already. Like we're so aware as children when we're not doing well, um, and we, we hated ourselves. We want to be your pride and joy. We want to make you happy. We want to do all those things. But before doing those things, when there's all these uh, different emotions or self-identity issues in the way, it's so hard to be able to, to display those things. And so, yeah. Gosh. So what was the turning point? I mean, how how do you get... Yeah. I just want to hear, what was the turning point? How did you get out of that? Yeah. So in high school, my senior year, I remember writing an essay and the essay's title, it's like the biggest paper that you write. Mm -hmm. And my title was cancer, my greatest teacher. 
breast cancer, my greatest teacher. Okay. And I found this paper. I graduated high school like 10 and a half years ago. <laughs> um, but I found this paper recently, like two years ago, and I was reading it. Uh, grammar is horrible, but <laughs> I can feel little centers, like my little me, 18-year-old me's earnestness. Earnestness and trying to figure out how trials and difficulties in life can actually be flipped for good and be lessons. And I, and that's something that I'm really grateful for in my parents that there was a lot of my, my life is one of redemption, reconciliation and, and freedom. It was just raw. It was just so raw. It was like four people coming in and just being messy and saying, okay, yeah, let's like be messy. I'm, I sign up for this, whatever is going to go on in your life. Like I'm here. And in this season, I'm going to be your parent or I'm going to be your son and daughter. But as I get older, it's like, we're all adults now. And I'm like, man, sometimes my dad needs help or, you know, and I'm like, man, I'm here for you. Like I like yes and amen to your life. And so I think that happened because during that time, my mom had cancer and whatnot. I don't know how they handled it. Um, particularly to come to this revelation, but I just remember my parents not giving up. Like it wasn't the end of the world for them. And I wish they showed a little bit of their emotions more and talked about it more. It would have been a little bit more helpful um, growing up, but the upside of them, like suppressing all of that or seemingly looking like it's fine is that it gave me strength to be like, yeah, it is going to be okay. Uh and like cancer isn't the end all. Like we we really dug in deep and was like, we're gonna beat this together. Yeah. And it actually brought our family together. Yeah. To see us um all contribute to that or put away our junk for a second and like just be like, here I am to help you. Yeah. Uh, the real turning point, I would say, after the five years of my prodigal son journey, um, I told my my friend, hey, I'll smoke you out. We'll smoke weed. And let's go to church if you go to church with me. So I bribed him with weed to go to church with me. And this Wait, is like why? Like what uh, made you want to go to church? <laughs> yeah, because during those five years, I would still always talk to God, or I would always be selling weed and sitting down and tell the other person about God or Jesus. I'm like, hey man, you need Jesus. I wasn't going to church myself. I felt very far, didn't quite understand him, was very confused. But I just my problem with God at that time was I knew he was real. But my, he my wasn't mom, doing what you wanted him to. Yes. It was that, okay, okay, that, yeah. And and I was young. I'm 15. You don't realize that there's just things in life that are that are out of your control or mm-hmm. they're just like, why do good, why do bad things happen to good people? Like those type of like philosophical core questions. Yep. And that's what I was like facing. I'm like, why is my mom on her deathbed? Like, God, where, what are you doing? And and so, yeah, so I would I would meet with people and talk to them about, Jesus, because I still very much knew he was real. I was just like, I don't get it, but I, I felt you, I've known you, I've met you, but right now I don't think I like who I think you are. I get so. Yeah. I'm going to, yeah. And so, yeah, I told my friend, Hey, I'll, I'll burn you out if you go to church with me. And of course, like in Hawaii, they kiss you on the cheek. So like the pastor was standing outside to greet people and they kiss you on the cheek, kind of like French style. And I had just smoked a fat blunt. And so 
I smell. And so I swerve the pastor's kiss. Like I literally like duck under his chin, walk in and we sit in the back, back, back row of the, the theater, which the church was held at. And so we're right by the sound booth in the last row. Um, and I don't remember the sermon, but they had a guest pastor and, and it was really cool. And we were driving, but all of a sudden in the middle of his sermon, he does something weird. He, he tells the whole congregation to stand up. And he said, Hey, I want everyone sitting in the front to go to the back and the back to come to the front. So naturally <laughs> like 250 people immediately look to the back and it's just me and my friend. And we're just like uh, deer cotton headlights. And the sound booth guy is like looking at us, like, are you guys going to move? Like, are you going to get up? And so we find ourselves in the front row and <laughs> the front of the podium. And I don't remember what the pastor was saying, his exact message, but I do remember the Holy Spirit just like filling me up. And I just said, God, like, I'm so sick of living life on my own terms. Uh-huh. Basically, I'm so sick of being my own God and just doing whatever. Um if you could take everything away that's keeping me from going to YWAM, which means really it was a symbolic term of just going to you, like a consecrated sacred time of returning to God. If you could take away everything that's keeping me from going to YWAM, I'll go. <gasps> and that was Sunday. Monday, uh, Monday, I was in a, so I was doing also sports booking gambling. So, so as a bookie for gambling, you just take little, it's like a little app. I know this sounds like very Ozarky and criminal, <laughs> but in actuality, it, I'm a 103 pound year old, like three pound, 20 year old, you know? And I'm like, just putting bets on my app on a phone. Um, Are you making yeah. money off of this? Yeah. Because, because at this time you have to know, I thought money was my savior and I right. thought I need to make money so I can pay my parents back. So oh, I can. Oh, okay. I I can hurry up and uh, I see that all the things that they're sacrificing to work, even sacrificing time with me because it's important for them to be financially stable, not even like super well off. And so I'm like, I need to contribute to the team. I need to contribute to the success of this family and to pay back these loving parents that, you know, are giving me the most interesting. Yeah. And so I'm doing sports gambling, long story short, get into an altercation very, very small altercation. And I was in the holding cell for 30 minutes and I got out on 50 minute bail. I literally just called someone out because I was upset that they wanted me to uh, pay for my validation, parking validation. Yes. Uh, and so that happened and my friends immediately picked me up. I was just, yeah, I was just going off. I was, I, I, I was, I thought it was me against the world. Yeah. And I had to be tough. And so yeah. that happened on Monday. $50 bail really quick. I even did push-ups in the in the holding cell because that's what I saw in movies. So all of these things I'm emulating and I'm copying culture because I was a latchkey kid. I watched TV. So I thought TV was real. Yes. I thought the parents and the families on TV, every episode had like a moral objective and like you learned a lesson. I thought every day in life should be like that. <laughs> be like so home, uh, what show? Um, Full House? Full or like- House, yeah. <laughs> When my dad wasn't acting like Bob Saget, I was like, what's going on, sir? <laughs> You're supposed to be very open and communicative. And um, yeah, so like those those things I was just copying because I wanted happiness and I, I needed to learn about life and 
TV and culture was the one that was teaching me it. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, did a little push up. It wasn't that bad. Declined the little sandwich that they gave me. Um, <laughs> but that was Monday. And then Tuesday, I couldn't believe I got arrested that I, you know, we went to karaoke with my friends and long story short, I get into a, I like was pulling out of the parking lot and I boom, hit one car. And then my friend's like, pull up, boom, hit the other car. It was such small little bumps. And I'm like, what are you doing to my friend? Who's like directing traffic. I'm like, what are you doing? And I kind of just rolled away because I was only 20. I shouldn't be, shouldn't have been there. Um, and so my mom calls me. She's like, son, I don't know what you did, but there's a cop at, at my house looking for you. Like, please just meet him and take care of this. Oh my gosh. And that's how my mom handled things. She didn't yell at me or she's like, you need to handle this. <laughs> uh, so that was Tuesday. And Wednesday, I saw my ex-boyfriend uh, come to my friend's club. I thought he was going to be my savior. So literally I said, if you could take away everything that's keeping me from going from you on Sunday, I'll go. So yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, I I end up clinging onto my ex-boyfriend's leg in, in front of everyone. And that was that. So total humiliation, not just in front of everyone, but for myself. Because I'm looking for an attachment or a bond to somebody who's going to, you know, rescue me. Yeah. Um, and so Thursday, horrible night happened. Wednesday night was horrible, I, you know. And so Thursday, I woke up and my mom knocks on my door. She sits on my bed and she goes, Sana, I don't know what's happening. There's, there's lawyers trying to represent you in court because of the little accident, the little bumps, uh, they call it. Um, we don't know what's been happening because you never talk to us and you never tell us, but we know that you've been, you know, struggling for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we just want to know if you're okay and that you can speak to us about anything. And at 20 years old, it was my first time that I realized that I wasn't fooling anyone. I wasn't hiding my depression or my self-hatred or even that I was a street pharmacist or doing out, going out and doing crazy things. Like my parents were well aware and were watching me the whole time and they were praying and they were, they were hoping uh, that I would make it back home safely every night. And that was like a huge wake up call for me Yeah, uh, that they, that they knew because this whole time I thought I was being incognito and that they didn't know or could see it. And I was hiding it because I didn't want to show my parents my pain because I knew that it would hurt them more. And so mm. we were just playing this plain, like hiding game from each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and then on Friday, my, my mom was like, I mean, my, on Friday I was like, dang it. I prayed that prayer on Sunday and I need to hold up my bargain, which is go to YWAM. So I lied on my, uh, application. Do you do drugs? No. Do you do this? No. Sunday school. Love Jesus. Yes. Um, <laughs> But when I got there, I realized his nature and character as a father wow. and where he was during all the times of darkness that I felt I was alone in. And I also learned about the enemy and his plans to steal, kill, and destroy. But God's plan to bring life abundantly yeah. and his illusion, like the enemy's illusions and facades to get into your head. Um, and that's why neuroplasticity is really important to me um, because there's a physiological um you know, we, we are physiolo- physiological entity. Like there's real things happening mm-hmm. uh, in our brain that, that is spiritual, you know, that, that yeah, is connected and interwoven. And so 
that was my big coming to. And, and what I want to say to this point is sometimes rock bottom is the most beautiful place you can be. Uh-huh. I hit my rock bottom and this is, this is, this isn't unique. Uh, this isn't like a, a rare case actually for immigrant families for their son, for their you know children to not be able to adjust between two worlds and not have a safe space uh, to talk through things because their families yeah. are busy hustling. So this is actually a common thing. And, and that's why I'm super passionate about talking uh, to people or youth groups about this, especially um, so that they can create safe spaces to just talk about life, life's questions. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was my big coming to hitting rock bottom is the most is the hardest thing for parents to watch and you want to shield and protect your kids from it. But at a certain moment, if that's what needs to happen, uh, because nothing else is working, then that might be the most beautiful thing. I don't know. <laughs> so good. So, so good. Um, Okay, will you talk about how this experience has kind of prompted you to do your yeah. entrepreneurial startup? Yes. So it's I, very cool what she's creating. And I want I, my listeners to hear about it. So talk I, about it. Um, yeah, so I am co-founding a startup called Milieu. And Milieu within itself is a French American word meaning a social environment. So one's education, their ethnicity, their background, the place they live, their milieu that makes up who they are. And so to make it cute, we're M-I-L-L-U. But what it is, it's milieu in a box, trying to create one social environment through a kit. And so we pair neuroscience and play therapy together um, by asking adults, industry professionals, or parents and educators, what is something you know now that you wished you knew when you were younger? And that's our golden question in which we extrapolate our kit themes from. And so this last kit was on uniqueness called the unique verse. And really what it is, is being able to get these life topics that I keep mentioning, putting it in a box, but making it fun and immersive while also not only designing it for the child to pay attention and be engaged, but also the parent. And so our target demographic is for the parent and child and families together to thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, And our whole goal is like, we want to see whole and healthy people, but we know how important and pivotal childhood is Mm -hmm. that you actually develop all these different things. And there's a lot of science around one to five years old as your brain is developing, but from five to 10, after you've received all this information and you're kind of figuring things out, we want to be able to talk about things early on so that they can grow in these concepts as they get older. And so, for instance, C.S. Lewis writes um, Chronicles of Narnia and you read it at, you know, six years old, 10 years old. And you're like, oh, Aslan is so cool. But as you get older, you're like, wait, Aslan is God. Yeah. That's so cool. And so that's what we're trying to do with these kids. They're fun and immersive kids with crafts, storylines, games, Socratic discussion methods, um, all around trying to get us to play together again. Yeah. is a playground and it's not a rat race. And so how can we make healthy minds um, and give vital life skills uh, so that we can prepare them for the future while also passing on intergenerational wisdom mm. so that we can from each other and give the next generation a head start in life. So good. 
Well, and I think what you what you experienced in your own home was your parents were working really, really hard mm-hmm. to create a great life for you and your brother. And and I'm like, I'm not, I'm I'm my journey is not as hard, I feel like, as your parents was as a parent, but I'm like, as a parent, I'm also working really hard to keep all the things, keep all the balls going. And what your product offers is like, here's here's take here's a, a simple solution to making sure you're having good conversation in the home. That's not another thing that you have to come up with and figure out how to create. And does that make sense? Yeah, so it's a way to do it, make sure it happens, but not take up all this extra brain space in a parent's yeah. mind. We want to lessen the parent's cognitive load and burden <laughs> from yes. their day. By And that's what we do. We're Gen Zs and millennials doing all the research, talking to all the interviewees and co-creating with thought leaders so that we can present this as a gift to parents. Yes. And, but also sneak in literal neuroscience and play therapy skills so that we can mitigate some mental health issues that might come up later on when mm-hmm. they didn't have these safe spaces to mm-hmm. grow and, and wrestle with these concepts. And so we were actually learning, like, I'm thinking, man, what are some things that I am learning right now that would have been beneficial if yeah. I was introduced earlier, like boundaries, you know, oh, we're saying, no, yes. I know we talked about that last yes. time. Yes. Boundaries or even like my uniqueness, how, how unique they're like, that's not just a fluff or a hype word, but that you are truly, truly unique. Yeah. And yes, we're reinventing the wheel in history of mankind, but no one can reinvent it like you can. Huh. And, at, and for this time and for this generation. Yeah, that's so cool. And those are, and so the, how do we fit all these things that we're learning as adults and find out things that children need at that moment that's appropriate for their developmental stage and package it in a way where everyone wants to do it? And really it's like exchanging worlds, being able to exchange worlds and talk about things that are off topic. Like, you know, one of our parents were like, well, I didn't know that so-and-so wasn't your friend right now, because one of the questions said, who would you like to share this with? And her mom was like, oh, why don't you share it with, you know, making up a name, Gabby. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not friends with Gabby right now. And she started to talk about how Gabby doesn't smile at her and she smiles at everyone else. She doesn't talk or laugh at her jokes. And like, if that question didn't exist, her mom wouldn't have known that actually Gabby was bullying. It may be a little bit bullying her daughter. And so it's really cool that tangents are welcome and you'll figure out things or find out things or learn things about each other um, that are kind of outside. You wouldn't find unless you're intentional about right. it. Open the conversation gate and then conversation flows, which is kind of like what your mom did that Friday. Was it Friday or was Thursday? Yeah, like, it was Thursday. Hey, I just want you to know that we see this and we want to know if you're okay. And it's like what she did in that moment was open the conversation gates and you didn't know that was possible or, you know. Oh, I just love it. I love it. I love it so much. I'm going to link your um, website and everything in our show notes. So all of you, all of you listening can um, check it out because it's so good. It's so, so good. Okay. Any other things you want to share? America is so beautiful, you know, like, and I'm so grateful to, for my parents' sacrifice and that we get to blend cultures here in America. 
you know, despite what's going on politically on TV or the news, that your neighbor is a good person. When I go outside, you know, I have neighbors of, you know, from all over the place in the world or, you know, and so they greet me with like the biggest smile. And I I never feel like I've never had to feel tense or weird or anything. And, and I feel like I want to be reminded and remind everyone else that that is America. That's a beauty of America, that we are a melting pot. We are all in a sense, immigrants that came here to make a future that's bright for everyone. I just wanted to take a time to like, be like, that's super cool guys. I've only met Senna a few times over Zoom, but this is what has jumped out at me through the screen. God has worked through all of the pieces or details of her story to bring her where she is today. The fact that she watched her Korean parents work so hard, persevere, have grit. Um, The fact that she grew up in Hawaii and has this aloha spirit. Um, And also that experience of growing up around multiple cultures in Hawaii. I mean, even the rock bottom point of her life. She seeks out YWAM. All of those details God is using for good today. And how often do we question the details of our lives? Not all pieces are pretty. They don't make sense in the moment. They may not be exactly what we pictured. However, God has the ability to take all of those pieces and turn them into something full of purpose. I can't imagine what her parents thought in her rock bottom. How much heartache did they feel? Yet there was a bigger picture at play. We can trust God with our children. Keep praying for your kids. Don't lose hope. And find ways to leave that conversation gate open. Thank you for listening today. I'll link Milu Box in the show notes so you can check out the product that they're creating. It is so cool. Um, Take a minute to rate this podcast in whatever platform you're listening to. Follow Four Parents on Instagram or Facebook and, you know, share this with a friend. Talk about it to somebody. That would help me so much. Uh, Thank you for listening and I will talk to you next time.